Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 5 This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, after he fathered Enoch, 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Doesn't that bless your heart? I know many times as we read through the Bible, we wonder why some of the genealogies are given. It seems like a list of details and names that really don't matter for us. But I will never apologize for the public reading of Scripture because I realize no matter how much I encourage you, for many of us, the only time we open God's Word is in the church. And so um, Paul encouraged Timothy to devote himself to prayer in the reading of Scripture. And so if the text may be long, it's because it's God's Word. And I do believe that all of God's Word is profitable to us. And we will find this morning... um, three truths in these two genealogies and a eulogy that hopefully will encourage us. Some of you may recall an advertising campaign for frozen pizza that asked the question, what do you want on your tombstone? It was a clever way of asking the question, what is important to you? Several years ago, my father was invited to pastor a group of senior adults in a larger church. And my father asked me to help him to brainstorm a ministry approach that was more than just potluck dinners, nursing home visits, and tours to Branson. So we put our heads together and we developed the name Lasting Legacy. The men and the women that he shepherded needed to think about their significance and their influence in terms of how they would be remembered following their geriatric years. If you are retired, God is not done with you yet. Even in your retirement, it is a time to think about what kind of a legacy you will leave. Fast forward to 2018, when the gospel group Casting Crowns recorded this song. Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. 
wrestle in my own mind. Is it better to leave no legacy or is it better to leave a legacy of faithfulness? But I am convinced that my faithfulness is less important than the gospel of Jesus Christ to which I aspire to be faithful. Today's text for us is longer than what I would usually cover in one sermon. But yet, in it, we find three distinct legacies. The first is in Cain's descendants. It's what we call the Kenites, because Canaanites is taken by those who live in Canaan. The descendants of Cain are referred to historically as the Kenites. And in Cain's descendants, I see a legacy of their career. The first genealogy that we begin reading here in verse 17 of chapter 4 has a lot of repetition with very few unique qualities. I believe the emphasis then needs to be given to the unique qualities that emerge out of the text. We observe several obscure names producing obscure sons until verse 20 where we begin to see the descriptions that set apart three of these descendants. And all three of these descendants in Genesis 4 are described based on their career or on their livelihood. In verse 20, we see that one son is known because of his work with animals. And at the risk of offending any 4-H or FFA showmen who have an affection for the individual animals, I believe the legacy of Jabal is rather forgetful. He lived in tents, he raised livestock, that's about all we know about him. We don't even know which type of animal he bred. Only that his people were nomads living in tents with somehow, it implies, migrating herds or migrating flocks. Now I know that many of you put great effort into raising good livestock. But is your herd what you want your grandchildren to remember about you? 
we then have a second son. Jabal had a brother, Jubal. And Jubal, from which we would get Jubilee or Jubilate, was a musician. Now, some of you know my story, and I was planning to study music education when I was called into the ministry. There was one Friday night in Kansas City, Kansas, where I sensed as plain as if it had been an audible voice. I sensed in my heart God saying, David, I want you to invest your life in things of eternal importance. Now, this is not to minimize the importance of music. In my mind, in the application, it was a call away from music being primary and then continuing to use music secondarily, as I have this morning. See, we are going to spend eternity giving praise to the Lamb who sits upon the throne as we sing, Worthy, worthy, worthy. We have inherited a collection of songs from previous generations that inspire our worship. And some of the songs being written today will continue to inspire our grandchildren. So I don't want to minimize music, but music is not primary. You know, even the classics to us, like Handel's Messiah, or the hymns by Isaac Watts, or Sir Isaac Newton, they only go back 350 years. Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God is less than 500 years old. We don't sing the songs from the first 1,500 years of the church. See, when I hear someone say, I like the old songs, I begin to wonder, how old? Because music is important. Music will be part of eternity. But Jubal was not primary. We may disagree if music is a lesser or a greater legacy than herds or flocks. As I look to my right and I see one who is a herdsman sitting next to one who is a musician, I don't mean to cause any strife in your marriage, but Jabal and Jubal left two careers behind them. We're then introduced to a third son in verse 22, a man who had the name Tubal-Cain. And he is the reason your husband can spend so much time in the aisles of Sutherland's at Home Depot, either online or with the catalog or in person, or spend their time at Blue Stem. The modern need for tools and hardware is a large reason why Strong City still has a hardware store even though all the local groceries have shut down. So we see in chapter 4, three careers. Animals, music, and hardware. But as I look at these stories, I'm faced with the application. In the scheme of eternity, 
How significant is a legacy of livestock, music, or tools? The two genealogies we are looking at today are split by a short piece of poetry that highlights the legacy of the father of the previous three mentioned brothers. For in the next verse, we see Lamech begin to describe his own legacy. I've identified this as Lamech's debauchery, which was a legacy of human force. I read in verses 23 and 24 that he was not the type of man who would let things pass. If someone offended him, he was going to make sure that he got revenge. But if you are like me, you have come to learn that revenge always escalates. Notice the only harm that was inflicted upon Lamech was a wound. And how does Lamech respond to the wound? By killing. Now, in our minds, revenge and seeking of justice are often overlapping, but yet they are separate ideas. It was mentioned earlier today that today is a national day of prayer for abused children. And while we seek justice for these children, it's not necessarily that we seek vengeance upon those who have hurt them. The justice for the children is to be our primary concern. And we will allow the courts and allow God to seek the vengeance that is necessary. But Lamech did not trust God to get vengeance. Lamech did not have enough faith that God is going to deal with him and God's going to make things right with him. God says he, or Lamech says, he wounded me, I'm going to end him. Ancient Babylon records, or ancient Babylonian law records a principle that was later repeated in Hebrew law in Exodus, and later in Roman law that reigned in the time of Christ. It is the law of retaliation, which in Latin is the word lex talionis. Lex talionis, or the retaliation law, is the standard where punishment was limited to the damage of the crime. We cannot seek more vengeance than the damage of the crime that was committed. It's most common today in the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone knocks out your tooth, you don't get to kill him. If someone knocks out your tooth, you're entitled to his tooth. If someone takes out your eye, you're entitled to his eye, but not to escalate the vengeance. But Lamech's standard that we see here at the end of Genesis 4 was a standard that if you come after me, I'm going to hurt you so bad 
my reputation is going to be out there that I'm going to get ten times what Cain got when Cain killed Abel. See, that's the problem of vengeance, is it escalates, and we become people of revenge. And when we are people of revenge, we, we then foster feuds in verses 24. The fear of the warring families would escalate to the scale that many of the battles in Afghanistan today are simply considered tribal conflicts. Entire villages are wiped out, and it's simply because, well, this tribe didn't like that tribe, or this tribe was offended by that tribe. And as these tribal warlords say, we're going to get a reputation of being the toughest, it goes back to Lamech, who says, I will seek revenge and I will seek feud rather than rely upon God to seek justice. In the mid-1860s, any of you remember the 1860s? I didn't think so. In the mid-1860s, militia groups that surrounded our country's civil war gave way to much misunderstanding. And decades-long feuds where one family felt disrespected by another family. Perhaps the most famous is a feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. In the days before color television, stories were told in black and white. And in 1957, which some of you will remember, but I will not, The Real McCoys was a television series that appeared for six seasons. Fast forward a little bit, in the year that I was born, Gomer Pyle, USMC, aired an episode about a feud between Gomer and Branch Eversoul. The feud could not be laid to rest between the Piles and the Eversouls until an Eversoul killed a Pile. And the remedy was during a baton drill, Branch was credited with a kill of Gomer. And since a pile had been killed in the drill, then Gomer and Branch could develop a friendship and allow it to continue. But not in the mind of Branch's father. Branch's father could not let go of that feud until a pile was killed. And that all goes back to Lamech. Lamech says, I'm not going to trust God to get justice. I'm going to get justice. And the kind of justice that I get, everybody's going to know that I am king of the hill. Real feuds, like the one that is declared by Lamech, can lead to the death of hundreds. Many places in our world today are still marked by this type of bloodthirst that justifies pillaging, raping, and murdering of innocents. Is that the legacy you would like to leave? Do we leave a legacy of my career was number one? Do we leave a legacy of I was so tough everybody feared me? Contrasting these previous two legacies, in the final one, in chapter 5, we see it goes back to Cain's father, 
and it runs through Cain's brother, moves forward 1,000 years to introduce the next major biblical character, a man by the name of Noah. And through Sethline, the Sethites, we actually discover a legacy not of career, not of human force, but a legacy of faith. Because notice with me at the end of chapter 24, when we look at verse 26, in those days they began to call upon the name of the Lord. In contrast to those who, who were career-focused or power-hungry, chapter 4 concludes by opening a window of hope that lets a little light shine in on human history. When things look like they're bad, we say, but Seth's descendants called upon the Lord. Cain's descendants were fixated with their own products. Seth's descendants realized a dependence upon God who seeks relationship with the humanity that he had created. The legacy is one of dependence. And midway between Adam and Noah, we are told that there was an individual who did not die. As a reminder of the origin of this legacy, they called upon God, they had faith in God, that will be picked up in the next chapter, in chapter 6, verse 9, at the end of this chain, Enoch is highlighted for his fellowship with God. He was a man of faith, and so God took him up, and there is no record of his death. Now, I notice as I look at these names, because I look at details, I don't want to get too mystical about numbers and their significance. I don't read tea leaves. I don't follow the stars. I'm not looking for secret hidden messages. But you will recall in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks how many times? Ten. In Exodus, he gives his law to his people. And how many laws are on the tablet? Ten. All right, now we're seeing some repetition. So, God speaks ten, God gives ten laws... I wonder how many generations there are between Adam and Noah. <laughs> A great squirrel. So, so now, if we count these generations, you want to venture a guess? Thank you, Bruce. There are ten. Now, some of you just cheated and counted the chart that is in your handout instead of the 32 verses of chapter 5. You are the smart ones. I drew out a family tree and I tracked all of the ages when they had a son and how many years they lasted. And then I found the chart that you have in front of you. And history experts argue if these 10 are an inclusive or a complete list. But I tend to take the truth as it has been passed down. And regardless of if this is historically accurate, as a literary device... The ten generations is an indicator to me that God is sovereignly working a purpose. He sovereignly created, he sovereignly rules, and here he is sovereignly guiding 
the generations. Now, here's a freebie, just a little bit of a side note. One of our members asked me to define the word sovereign as one of our Christian words of the week. Because she said, in my church upbringing, that wasn't a word that we used. So when I say God is sovereignly superintending the generation, sovereign means, as we use it in Christianity, that God has the authority and the ability to intervene at any time in any way that he chooses. God has both the authority and the ability at any time to intervene. And I believe these ten indicate that God was orchestrating the generations. Now back to Adam's descendants. Tracking the years, I found out that Adam was still alive until after Noah's father was 100 years old. So in case you are ever on Jeopardy or playing Trivial Pursuit, Noah is born 1,056 years after creation. And the flood happens when Noah is 600 years old. That boat didn't come together overnight. So this throws a huge wrinkle into a lot of the dating by paleontologists or geologists. Now, I'm not educated in those disciplines, so I'm just going to leave this statement right there. But if this is an accurate chronology, the earth is a lot younger than many would have us to believe. So we've seen a legacy of career and work. We've seen a legacy of human force. And now we have a legacy of those who depend upon and call upon the name of the Lord. The only defining characteristic of, of Adam's legacy is their dependence upon God and their relationship with God. Now, perhaps you are not concerned with the legacy you will leave. On the other hand, yesterday I sat with a family in our church who was asking, what will we tell these children about this man when they are old enough to ask? You may aspire, like Mark Hall in the song played earlier, to leave no legacy. Try as you may, should Jesus not rapture his church, your future generations will ask about you. I spent two days earlier this week helping my parents downsize into what they expect to be their final independent home. And we talked honestly about hard subjects, like how they wish to be laid to rest. And part of those discussions included me receiving inheritance items like the family silver flatware and a knife that belonged to my grandfather. But as my parents are going through this downsizing process, I greatly appreciate their legacy. I appreciate the values that they have instilled in my sisters and me so that stuff is not what defines their legacy or our inheritance. Their legacy, our inheritance, is faith 
in a living God upon whom we can call and, if, and with whom we can relate. At the beginning of this sermon, I asked you a question. And now I ask you again, what do you want on your tombstone? As you think about that question, I invite you to stand with me as we'll sing together and make a proclamation. It's number 376. If Jan or Jean went to thumb wrestled for the right to play. But it's a song that you and I will all remember well. 